Section 8 of The Normans in Europe by Arthur Henry Johnson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 6. Richard the Good and the Norman Settlement in Italy, 996 to 1026, Part 1. By the death of his father, Richard II, the Good, succeeded at a somewhat early age. Scarcely was he on the ducal throne when he had to meet a threatening movement on the part of the peasants in 997. It is not often in the history of that date that we have an opportunity of judging of the condition of the lower classes. The scarcity of all written records, and the fact that the chroniclers wrote only for princes and their courtiers, have alike contributed to this. Hence, little as we know of this peasant revolt, it naturally arrests our attention. We have seen that in the days of Richard the Fearless, aristocratic ideas were growing, and that the feudalizing process, that is, the custom of commending oneself to an overlord, had already commenced. Under his son these ideas increased. Brought up a thorough Frenchman, he had imbibed the aristocratic and feudal sentiments which were arising in France and a later writer informs us that he refused to have any but gentlemen about his person, while the possessions carved out of the ducal domain for the numerous illegitimate children of the late duke increased the number of the petty lords. This, too, is the date of the rise of baronial castles. Europe probably first learnt the art of building them to protect themselves against the Northmen, the Hungarians, and Saracens, whose intermittent ravages had been common for the last two centuries, and we may be sure that the Normans would not be slow to follow the lead and to cover the country with these defenses of the strong. Hence aristocratic privilege increased, while the numerous grants made to the courtly adherents of the duke multiplied the numbers of the landlords and brought them into close connection with the peasantry. The peasant class in Normandy was formed chiefly of the old Romance population, who, at some time subsequent to the first settlement of the Northmen, had fallen into the class of villains, holding small plots of land for which they owed service to their superior. Elsewhere in France the condition of the lower classes was probably very wretched. They were harassed by continual war, agriculture was in its infancy, and there was no skill to struggle against adverse seasons. The increase of pestilence and famine was the sad result. Forty-eight such visitations are recorded between 987 and 1057. Probably the condition of the peasants in Normandy was not so bad. A man must have bread before he can become a politician, and the peasants at this time seem to have had some ideas of self-government. To men in such a position, the growth of aristocratic privilege, the multiplication of landlords, and the advance of the theory of lordship would be peculiarly galling. This was the probable reason for the movement, which was most likely joined by some of Scandinavian descent and some smallholders irritated at the growth of aristocratic privilege. Retaining perhaps from Roman times some traces of local self-government by which the decemvirs were elected in each pagus to form a municipal council, 
these peasants began to assemble and discuss their wrongs. The author of the Roman de Roux, writing in the twelfth century, thus sums up their complaints. The nobles do us naught but ill, and we gain no profit from our labors. Our days are spent in toil and fatigue, our beasts are seized for dues and services, our goods wasted by continual suits. We have no safety against our lords, and no oath is binding on them. Why should we not shake off all the evil? Are we not men as they? Dare we to do and dare, a good heart is all we want. Let us then unite, and if they should make war upon us, have we not thirty or forty hardy peasants ready to fight with club and flail to each knight? Let us only learn to resist, and we shall be free to cut our firewood, to fish and hunt, to do our will in river, field, and wood. Encouraged by these harangues, they deputed representatives to a general assembly and made a commune, says the same author, to talk over their wrongs and discuss the means of resistance. The writer, a clerk of the royal chancery to Henry I, would not be likely to paint their motives or their actions in favorable colors. From this, an enemy's account, we may therefore fairly conclude that the movement was something more than a meaningless savage revolt against all order. We meet with no such movement in England till the time of Richard I, when London was threatened by something of the same sort under William Fitzobert. That was, however, only a municipal movement, confined to the city itself, and for the true counterpart of this we must wait till the rebellion of Watt Tyler in Richard II's reign in 1381. Like that, however, it was doomed to failure. It was looked upon as a dangerous revolt against society and was dealt with accordingly. Richard, getting news of it before it had gained a head, crushed it out with merciless cruelty, and the chroniclers of the day recount with brutal levity how the rebels were scourged their eyes plucked out, their heads chopped off and distributed as a warning amongst their neighbors. We hear no more of peasant revolts in Norman history, but it seems to have borne its fruit. When we reach the era of the written evidence, we find the villainage of Normandy lighter than elsewhere, personal servitude did not exist, while the villain holders of the Channel Islands seem from very early times to have enjoyed a freedom as great as that of our yeomen. Master of his subjects at home, the Norman duke rapidly increased in power abroad. This will be best appreciated by considering the foreign relations of the duke to the various countries which surrounded him. With the German Otto he had little to do. The Normans had now become Frenchmen, and the dynastic quarrels between Germany and France, rudely settled by the accession of the Capetian dynasty, were at an end. Each country was now carrying on its work of consolidation until they should be again drawn into the conflict as the age of political contests drew on. France Richard the Good remained true to the policy inaugurated by his father, in connecting himself closely with his overlord, the Capetian king. This policy was dictated by identity of interest. 
Normandy, as well as France, was surrounded by dangerous neighbors. The Duke of Burgundy, the Count of Anjou, the Counts of Chartres and Flanders, all of them jealous of the growing power of the two upstarts, the King of Paris and the Duke of the Normans. The Normans had now become thoroughly French in interests and ideas, and if the Dukes of Normandy were the chief mainstay of the King, the alliance of Paris was nearly as valuable to the Norman Dukes. In fact, their destinies were to advance hand in hand until their relations should be reversed by the overwhelming power of the Norman vassal. Thus it is that in all the wars of Robert, who had now succeeded Hugh Capet, whether against Flanders or against Burgundy, we find Richard lending valuable assistance, while the King of Paris acts as mediator in some of Richard's quarrels. Two of these alone are of sufficient importance to be noticed. The Burgundian Wars Burgundy, destined ever to be a thorn in the side of France, at this time called for the interference of Robert. The Duchy of Burgundy had been secured to Henry, brother of Hugh Capet. On his death he had left it to his stepson, Otto William, a Lombard, thus violating the rights of the overlord, the King of Paris, to whom it should have reverted. Burgundy had been too long regarded a fief of the Kingdom of Paris for this to be overlooked, and Robert, gaining material assistance from Richard, asserted his claim to the fief in 1003. Otto, however, was supported by nobles and clergy, and an obstinate war of twelve years ensued before Burgundy was restored to the Capetian king. Otto himself subsequently gained the county of Burgundy, Franche-Comté, part of his mother's inheritance, which, with its connected territories of Alsace, Lyon, Dauphiné, and Provence, henceforth definitely belonged to the German Empire. Eudes II of Blois The dominions of Thibault of Blois, the old enemy of the kings of Paris, were now in the hands of his grandson Eudes, second of that name. Holding Chartres, Champagne, and Brie, as well as Blois, he caused considerable apprehension to his overlord at Paris. Not content with these extensive and rich domains, in 1003 he seized Milan, lying on the left of the Seine, to the southeast of Paris, and important as an outpost by which his power could be restrained. Once more Robert summoned Richard, and by his trusty aid regained this important frontier town. Subsequently, however, Richard changed his policy, and true to the instincts of his race, which led the Normans to detect the signs of future greatness, connected himself with the rising house of Blois. Eudes married his sister Maud, and a short quarrel which ensued as to the possession of the county of Dreux, her dower was compromised. Eudes retained possession of this important frontier to the south of Normandy, and the subsequent marriage of his son Stephen to Adelisa, the daughter of Richard, cemented still closer the alliance of Normandy with that house which was eventually to give a king to England. Nor was this the only important alliance made by Richard. With the growing power of Brittany, separated from Normandy only by the small stream of the Quenon, he connected himself by a double marriage. 
He himself married Judith of Brittany, sister of Geoffrey, Count of Rennes, who had established his supremacy over the country and gained the title of duke, and Hadouisa, his sister, became Geoffrey's wife. When Geoffrey died, his sons Alan and Odo fell under the guardianship of their uncle and suzerain. Alice, another daughter, married Renan, Count of Burgundy, while another, Eleanor, married the powerful Baldwin the Bearded of Flanders. These alliances attest the importance of the Normans abroad, but there is one more to mention, which first brought Normandy and England into close relation with one another and was fraught with most momentous consequences to them both. England at this date, under the incapable rule of Ethelred the Unready or Lack Council, 978 to 1016, was once more being threatened by the Danes. These Danish invasions no longer took the same character as the former inroads. The earlier were those of people driven out from their northern home and invading England for the purpose of permanently settling in the country. But now the three kingdoms of Norway, Sweden, and Denmark had become settled and organized, and the latter, under the powerful Sven Forkbeard, was engaged in a political conquest of England. Ushered in by some piratical attacks, the Danes, in the year 994, began definitely to threaten England. End of Section 8